Back to the book of Genesis we go this morning, so I invite you to the 45th chapter, Genesis chapter 45, and we'll be taking up in particular verse 24. So I was uh, reading this uh, whole text to you uh, last week, and we came to this verse. I heard uh, some chuckling uh, about this uh, particular passage from the congregation, and in a certain sense it truly is something to chuckle about. But um, as with much that is humorous, and uh, particularly when the Bible uses things that have a uh, color of humor, there is always some important lesson, terribly important lesson for us to learn at that point. And it is out of that conviction that we return to this particular verse from last week's text to draw some lessons for ourselves. Toward which end, may we go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are utterly dependent upon you to to open your word to us, upon your spirit to be here, to teach us things from your law. For that ministry, now we pray and plead that our lives may be formed by and conformed to your word for your glory and for our good, for therein is our happiest, truly most joyful and fullest life in conformity with your truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, most of you who have been here for the course of these uh, sermons, and so will immediately remember the background. Joseph has... Uh, after suffering the jealousy and outrage of his brothers, had been sold by them into slavery. A couple of decades before this history that we're about to read, the brothers, after changing their minds about simply killing Joseph, instead sold him to a band of Midianite traders who in turn sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt. Joseph's life in Egypt was a roller coaster ride, of course, from from slave to head manager in Potiphar's house to jail, and, and then from there to second in command in Egypt. It is that post of vizier or prime minister in Egypt that Joseph holds when his estranged brothers appear before him, coming from Canaan, seeking food in a time of severe famine. Now, he recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. And uh, in preparing for and accomplishing a work of reconciliation between them, Joseph puts the brothers through a series of rigorous tests and trials before finally revealing himself to them. But now all is revealed. Joseph and the brothers are reconciled. And on this day, Joseph sends his brothers home to fetch their families and their father, Jacob. What is his instruction to them upon sending them? This in Genesis forty-five twenty-four. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. Now why does that parting word sort of amuse us? Why does it at first cause us to, to giggle as we're making our way through the text and then to wonder? Well, first, let's ask what it was meant to address. Why would Joseph tell the brothers to beware quarreling on their way back home to fetch their families and father? It sounds like Joseph addressing a bunch of children or something, that they wouldn't argue on their way home. 
But we know that they're not children. They're grown men with families of their own. But Joseph knows these men. Joseph is himself a shrewd judge of character, else he would not have been able to handle this job of managing Egypt's affairs, Pharaoh's affairs as prime minister in Egypt. Yet, yes, this whole episode has moved Joseph deeply. Of course, it has, even to tears and to weeping so loudly that soon all of Egypt knew and heard of it. But that didn't mean that Joseph had lost his senses. He knows these men. And he knows these men in particular. He knows how easily, how quickly they might regress to their old ways of fighting and bickering among themselves. He's just sent them away with blessings, Joseph has, but especially blessings for Benjamin. So they might easily look over at Benjamin's sack and be tempted to say, Here we go again. Here we go again. More favoritism. First it was Joseph. Then it was Benjamin. Now it's Joseph for Benjamin. I guess we're forever going to be taking back seats in this family. Or think about the task before them as they return to their father in Canaan. How could they explain all of this without making a confession to him, not only of what they've done in the past, the sale of their brother, their lie to their father, but what they've continued to do, letting their father think for all of these years that Joseph had been killed and that they themselves were just clueless about the whole thing, didn't have any idea what happened to Joseph. What a cruel hoax They have played on their father with the the robe and the blood and then all these years of cover-up. How to explain that? And who would explain it all to the father? And who would take the blame? Late Dr. James Boyce imagines the conversation going this way. Reuben protests. When we get back to Canaan, I have to tell father what happened. Remember that I tried to save Joseph. I told you not to kill him. I said throw him into this cistern because I wanted to come back later and pull him out and take him back home where he'd be safe. Well, don't look at me, Judah might have added. You're going to kill him, all of you. I'm the one who really saved his life because I said let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. I remember saying that he was our own flesh and blood and that we shouldn't kill him for that reason. I didn't do it all by myself, Simeon says. You were all part of it. Not as much as you, the others might have objected. You took the lead. Well, at least I didn't have anything to do with it, says Benjamin. I wasn't even there. I was home with father in Hebron. Look at the goody-goody now. You're as bad as Joseph was. You're just lucky it was Joseph instead of you. Of course, we don't read anywhere in the scripture that such a conversation took place. But it isn't very difficult to imagine, is it? In fact, Joseph himself must have imagined it or something like it in his mind. It was not for nothing that he told his brothers, no quarreling on your way home. 
Nor is it very difficult to imagine such a thing today, is it? Those brothers, those brothers comprised the church of their day. They were the called out ones. They were God's chosen people, just as the church is today. They had just been rescued from absolute peril, just as the church of any age has been. They from death by starvation. We all in the church of any age from death by eternal perdition. But that salvation, at least in Joseph's mind, did not mean that they were no longer susceptible to the temptation of quarreling and fighting. Nor, alas, has it kept entire churches from splitting over such things as meager as the color of the new carpeting. Sometimes it surprises us to hear about a church that splits over some trivial or petty issue. Like it surprises us to hear Joseph telling his brothers of all things, no fighting now, no quarreling. And that's the first point. It is surprising. In a true and real sense, it is surprising to find quarreling and fighting in the church. It is surprising, I say, because of all the people in all the world who should know better, who should have put bitter fighting behind them, who should be marked by peace and by love and the absence of quarrels. It should be the people who know themselves to be the recipients of the objects of truly amazing grace. If the church has suffered bitter controversy, partisanship, and division expressed in the forms of arranging from pettiness to outright torturous murder. And it is not only Christians, but we must say it with grief. Others outside of grace have looked and have scratched their heads about this. The 17th century Jewish philosopher Spinoza observed, I have often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. In a less sophisticated way, but just as pointedly, a next-door neighbor of mine, upon finding out that I am a Christian minister, when we moved into our home a few years ago, wondered aloud to me, about you Christians. It's obvious that you can't get along. Oh, I asked. Yes, she said. Y'all have churches on every corner. And you all do your own thing. You can't even seem to agree about anything. 
Ah, you say, yes, that is the state of things in the 21st century. And it might have been in the 17th. If only we could get back to the good old days, back to the time described by the ancient church father Tertullian's famous statement that he puts into the pagan's mouth. My, how those Christians love one another. And it is true. The love of the church was remarkable. But the church was already by that time time marked by bitter divisions, dirty dealings, even hatred. Christians were pit, pitted against Christians in the very first regional synod known to history, and an entire sect was excommunicated, who, looking back on them, held to the main points of an Orthodox Christian confession. And the history of the Christian church from that time on has been punctuated, marked, and marred by division, mistrust, miscommunication, misunderstanding, quarreling, fighting. We could go on to speak of controversies over issues that range from the sublime to the ridiculous. But you say, take it even further back. Go, go, go back to the apostolic, the golden age of the apostles. Well, you will find that the gold had grown dim all the way back then. What is Paul addressing in his letters to the Corinthians? Splinters in the church. Not so much even over doctrine, but over personalities and parties. The issues over which they were divided and quarreling ranged from their favorite preacher to different opinions about eating meat that had been offered to idols, to jealousy over one another's spiritual gifts. And not much has changed. Many of you are old enough to remember splits in our own evangelical, reformed Presbyterian tradition that have been dominated by personalities, relatively petty differences of opinion about small matters, Matters at least that should never have split the church. Too small to justify the quarrels. I know that coming into Presbyterianism myself from another denomination several years ago, I was surprised to read some Presbyterian history, especially recent history of divisions between conservatives that seem to be much more about personalities really than anything else. And we could be easily be surprised by the litany of the quarrels that have taken place between men whom we would otherwise admire as great heroes of the Christian faith. Like John Wesley, who translated that marvelous hymn we sang just a few minutes ago. John Wesley and Augustus Toplady, another superb hymn writer, who, of course, had very different theologies. We understand that. But who fought bitterly and publicly with one another during the years of the Great Awakening. Why should those things surprise us? I say they surprise us in a sense. In, in this sense, here we are, a bunch of redeemed Sinners, a bunch of people whose feet were once running headlong to hell, but are now set on pilgrimage to heaven. Now what? 
in the world. I ask you, should unify a people more than something like that? If people can put aside their differences and rally around the UK Wildcats or around the Packers, good grief around the Cubs, could not we who know ourselves to be redeemed from the eternal wrath of God put aside the smaller differences? Put aside even the offenses which we suffer from one another's sins and make our way together to heaven? Could not Joseph be confident that the brothers who have this newfound salvation of their own who are on their way to fetch their families to a land of of plenty with the good news, we might say, on their lips, could they not be trusted to put aside their quarrelings and fightings? I tell you, it's right. It's right that we should be surprised by Joseph's comment. And we should go right on being surprised that regenerated Christians can fall so easily to, to quarreling and fighting over nothing. It should never become routine to us that churches disintegrate into a virtual brawl that results in true children of God, glaring at one another from arm's length, never to speak to one another in this life again. Let it never become to us a matter of indifference that given the right set of circumstances, this congregation, this very congregation, could split right down the middle. Why? So that we will give ourselves to vigilantly, vigilantly guarding our thoughts, our hearts, and our words. So that Joseph's warning may find its way deep into our beings as well. No quarreling along the way. No fighting along the way especially not on your way, the way that leads directly to heaven. That's the first point, the surprise of quarrels between Christians. Second, in an effort to head off those quarrels, consider the source of quarreling between Christians. And you may well say, well, of course, it it must be doctrine. It must be doctrine, matters of truth. That's the source of quarrels. Well, it may appear that way on paper. And sometimes it is true. There must be serious struggles in the church over matters of truth and of doctrine. But James lays his finger on the real source of most quarrels in the Christian church when he writes in that book in chapter 4 this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Isn't that the case? That your passions are at war within you? We can easily imagine it with the brothers on their way back home. The issues, if they did quarrel, wouldn't really be the issue. 
The issue would be their passions, their flesh rising up in pride, in self-defense, in self-interest, in fear, in distrust, in jealousy. So it is in many an intra-church fight today. I've seen it myself up close and personal in my own involvement in one way or another as an outside party and other churches squabbles over the years. The issues weren't the issue. The issues weren't really the issue. The issue was personal passion driven by fear, by self-interest, power-seeking, turf-guarding. Peel away the layers like James did and you find the source, your passions at war within you. You desire and you do not have. You covet and you cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel, says James. Now, it's terribly important for us to reckon with this fact that behind quarrels, the source really is the passions of men. Redeemed men, yes. Regenerate men, but still sinful, still short-sighted, still fallen men. John Wesley and Augustus Toplady, both in heaven today, I am convinced, would tell you the same thing. The bitterness of their rivalry had more to do with personal passions than it did with truth. And George Whitfield and John Wesley, both in heaven, would tell you that what kept them whose doctrine also differed greatly, what kept from their relationship the same sort of bitterness was that by God's grace, they were able to disagree in principle while keeping their passions under control, even affectionately directed toward one another, as you can detect if you read their letters to one another. I say it's important to recognize the source of quarrels in the church because when once you identify the source, then you can begin to apply the solution. And that's the third point. Never let us fail to be struck, even surprised by the ability of blood-bought brothers and sisters to quarrel, knowing the source of our quarrels. And then third, let us seek the solution to those quarrels even before the quarrels begin. And what is the solution? Well, James gives it to us in four parts, four commands, and I'm indebted to James Boyce for pointing them out. First, submit to God. That is, recognize that God is in control of all things. It's amazing, truly. Isn't it amazing how much practical atheism there is in the church, in the Christian church today? Not that we literally have Christians going around and saying that there is no God. Of course not. With their actions, I mean, they say there is no God. And we're all guilty of this. We all are. 
Every time we worry and fret about something, we're living like practical atheists. We're living like God doesn't exist. Like we have to take this worry upon ourselves. When we fight for our own personal rights to defend our own little kingdoms and and our little reputations from tarnishment, instead of trusting God to defend our good name, we live like practical atheists. When we covet power that God has given to others, instead of remembering that it is God who puts them in in those positions and offices, we live as practical atheists. We aren't submitting to God because we're not even seeing God's hand in these things. And in this respect, Joseph's brothers could have learned a lot from Joseph, couldn't they? It was Joseph. He saw God's hand in everything, in in the slavery, in the management, in the jail. In, 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 in the high places in civil government, Joseph had learned always to say what the Lord does is best because the Lord does all things. How many church quarrels would never happen, never even get started, if Christians took that view? We can only long to know. Second, James says, resist the devil. Christians, you have a real enemy who has the power even to plant thoughts in your own heart and mind. He goes about, the devil does, seeking whom he may devour, and his favorite dish is the off-guard church member. But his appetite, you see, is insatiable, and where he can get more than one, where he can get a whole plateful of them, he will enter the church. He is ever scheming, ever working at his favorite game. You know what his favorite game is? Church splitting. He loves it. Watch out for him. Dear flock, Do not take the great gift of a happily united church family for granted. There is little that Satan would love more than than to see our church divided against itself. Resist his schemes by resisting the devil where he first attacks in your own heart. Resist him. By God's strength at work in you, resist him. By the armor God supplies you, resist him. And, says James, he will flee from you. And while resisting, third, draw near to God. How? Quite simply, by loving his presence. By loving to enter into his worship, as the psalmist did. By loving above everything else to be in the house of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. The one thing the psalmist sought. Make that your desire as well.
Draw near to Him also by the exercises of prayer and time spent daily in His Word. So fill your eyes, the eyes of your heart, with Him, with the sight of God. So satisfy yourself upon Him that you will have no need to quarrel with your fellow Christian. There will be nothing that he or she can do or, or fails to do that will really matter to you at all. When you are filled with God, when you are close to God and your heart is fully satisfied with Him and Him alone, little else will matter and nothing will require quarreling. And then finally, in drawing near to God, also forth, humble yourself before the Lord. In other words, see yourself for what you really are before His majesty and His glory. So much of the quarreling in the church boils down, quite simply, to this. A vastly overestimated view of myself. An overestimation of self and its own, her own, his own importance. Pride, C.S. Lewis wrote, Pride has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. And we might add this morning, in every church. Other vices, he goes on to write, may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and joke and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people, but pride me always means enmity. It is enmity. Later he writes this, pride is spiritual cancer and it eats up every possibility of love. And Lewis is right, of course. Where pride goes, quarreling goes. Because pride eats up love in an insatiable desire for itself and for self's ways. But dark pride is driven out, is flooded out by the light of God's presence. In a life that is humbled before Him. And do you know how that you've been in God's presence? Lewis answers, The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. Dear flock, I tell you, people who have forgotten about themselves altogether in the presence of God don't quarrel. Amen.